Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte. Willow Walsh. And Reagan Skaggs. And you're listening to... Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We envision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good this summer. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. Theme music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's archive titled Muslims Are People's Neighbors and Bound to My Safety. As per usual, we'll play the stories and pause between each of them to have a conversation about what we hear from the storytellers. And so, Allison, would you like to tell folks a little bit about why we decided to choose these stories today? Yes. Well, listeners, you're probably well aware that today is September 11th and therefore the 20th anniversary of the attack on the... um, Twin Towers, the Pentagon, and then the Flight 77 that ended up um, being recovered from the hijackers by the mm-hmm. passengers and ended up landing in Pennsylvania. So there's a lot of attention uh, to um, remembering how people were impacted by those events um, and the the years ensuing, including the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. So. Um, we know that in part there was a strong backlash for a lot of Americans and probably and worldwide um, Muslims in the in our communities as people conflated um, the Islamic radicals with Muslims more broadly. Um, and so we wanted to have a chance to, think through that experience um, with some of our storytellers, neither of whom are directly addressing 9-11, but um, there's enough overlap, I think, that it will make for good conversation as we remember this day. Yeah. Okay, so our first story then um, is titled, Muslims Are People's Neighbors. Everyone has a responsibility to educate themselves when people hear about things happening to Muslims here. They don't necessarily care, you know? Like, for example, I have friends who I'm probably the only Muslim they know, you know? And so when something happens and I tell them, they're like, what? This happened? I'll never forget the first time um, I went shopping with a friend after I put the scarf on, and there's this guy at the mall who was just, like, staring me down. Like, I'm walking, and he just stood in the middle of the mall and just, like, glared at me to the point that his friends came and, like, grabbed him, and I just kind of, like, smiled and waved at him and was like, hi. And my friend was shocked, like, shocked. She didn't even know what to do. And she was so angry. And I was like, it's not a big deal. Let's just keep going. And like for the next like two hours, she just kept going back to it. And and I was like past it already. Like I was just kind of like, whatever. It happens. And she's just, I can't believe you did that. I can't. Do you always get that? And I was like, yeah, of course. She's just like, oh my God. It definitely makes me very conscious of everything around me. And I'm one of those people who typically it just kind of like walks without realizing where I'm going. So it's annoying that I always have to like be aware of anyone who might do or say something. There are two billion Muslims in the world. Like that's two sevenths of the world population. And then to go and blame two billion people for the actions of a supposed few, because of course now we're getting it with the Boston bombings. When were the bombings? Like three weeks ago? 
I, I, can't e I don't even know how many stories I've heard of um, women or men getting beat up, um, getting assaulted. The day after the Boston bombings, people compiled, some website compiled all the tweets that people tweeted um, after the bombings and the stuff that they were saying about Muslims and Arabs, I mean, it was it was absolutely ridiculous. I mean, really. And just the fact that, you know, after they found out that the suspects were Chechen, right? There was like a lull on the internet for a while because everyone had to go online and learn where Chechnya was. Is it a Muslim country? Is it this? You know, it's just, it just shows you, you know, for the most part, the people who say anything like that, complete ignorance okay people who do anything it's just it's out of complete ignorance and the only way to combat ignorance is with you know knowledge and education i i know definitely like you know in valpo i don't i don't i had i didn't have any problems i was i was very lucky but um i know for a fact you know i had family overseas who were like they're like be careful like don't let anyone do anything stupid you know because people in other countries because they get worried you know that like you know if i'm going out alone or my brother and my sister and my mom and people are sometimes they just they they do things they wouldn't normally do and, you know, sometimes, and a lot of times the Muslims are the ones who have to deal with that, you know? And I'd say that about, you know, I think that's any, you know, most minority races when something like that happens. But for right now, the popular thing is to, you know, attack Muslims. And you just got to be careful. There's absolutely no reason for you or for anyone to be unaware of, you know, what's happening to, you know, your neighbor. Like, Muslims are people's neighbors in this country, in, in every country, everywhere around the world. They're a huge presence. And... I, I think everyone just you know you really you need to you need to know and it's if you don't know then the blame is ultimately upon yourself. This is Allison Schuette and I'm with Willow Walsh and Reagan Skaggs and this is Listen Up Welcome Project Radio. Um, on the show we always play stories from our archive at the Welcome Project and then have a conversation about them. And um, today we've chosen two stories that relate directly to people's experience of their Muslim faith or Muslim identity in order to help us um, honor and acknowledge uh, September 11th and its 20th year anniversary today. Where would y'all like to start? Well, for me, um, this speaker, she is a very quick talker. <laughs> so yes. I actually don't know if I actually caught what happened at the mall with the guy. Did anybody catch that? I mean, he was just like staring at her and oh, okay. staring at her and was so focused on this person with the hijab on that she says that his friends eventually had to kind of like take him away, pull him away. Uh, from her and her friend. Oh. Yeah, and I think what is so striking about what happens there is that this is such a typical experience for the storyteller that she, um, I, I don't know, like it, she can brush it off pretty quickly, but the friend that she's with is just really stuck on it <laughs> and is shocked that it is something that the storyteller experiences on a regular basis. I kind of wonder if that added to <laughs> the experience for the storyteller, mm -hmm. like that then you're sort of caretaking a little bit for your friend who's just so in shock. I mean, it sounds like she has, the storyteller has a lot of um, generosity around this experience in order that I, I don't know, I don't want to make too much of it, but it just strikes me that, um, you know, to have a friend kind of keep pulling you back towards something mm. that you've already walked 
beyond mm. or worked past that, that that would be a little frustrating maybe I wonder too if it's like um if it happens often and she's so used to brushing it off that it kind of her friend's reaction maybe like outlines it like you're saying like yeah <laughs> like oh yeah yeah that really was mm-hmm. like I think I wonder if this happens so often that you're just like okay I'm you know I'm used to it it doesn't have the same sort of like gravity but then you know somebody there like this objective person to be like no that was really bad that was really freaky for that guy to do that like I can't believe you're not still thinking about that I don't know I feel like that would put it back in my brain it's like yeah that is um that sucks i mean but at the same time also i think that um people in these situations like it's almost a coping situation with this happens to me so often Mm -hmm. i cannot dwell on it more than i have to dwell on it like she already talks about having to be uh kind of hyper aware of her surroundings and the people in her surroundings so i think for her like she's already giving a lot of mental energy to this as it is she can't focus on something that ultimately ended in nothing does that make sense Mm -hmm. you know yeah and if that happens like i don't know let's say once a week that's a lot of times um and how much brain energy can you give to each and every time of like this person made me profoundly uncomfortable and they did so intentionally yeah i mean the speaker says um that this experience makes her conscious of everything around me and i'm one of those people who typically just kind of like walks without realizing where i'm going Mm -hmm. which i think is interesting because it also means that she can it's it's not as if this I don't even know if we should call it a microaggression because it seems just just aggression. aggression. (laughs) Um, uh, It it seems like it would be so prevalent. Maybe that's me overestimating or underestimating fellow human (laughs) beings. So so she can actually have this moment of like uh, unconsciousness, just uh, which is what we would typically want for all of us you know moving around in the world we would want to call that normal that you don't have to think about like you know is is your appearance going to shock or surprise somebody um so she ends by saying it's annoying that I always have to be aware of anyone who might do or say something so I think even though earlier she was telling her friend it's not a big deal um it is a big deal yeah Mm -hmm. uh but you just don't want it to impact your moment at the mall i mean i'm Mm -hmm. sure they didn't go there in order to deal with social issues there was a a new restaurant at the food court you know they wanted to go try something else i don't know but she then goes on to talk about um the boston bombings and i don't know why well i guess okay first of all for me when what year was that that was like that's a question it was a 2010s or late yeah. 2000s That's early 2010s because i remember the boston bombings yeah, I do and too. i don't i don't remember 9 11 yeah. um 2013 yeah that sounds right mm-hmm. april 15th 2013 mm-hmm. yeah that sounds right i mean i don't know why i would say it's not right you just looked it up but you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> i appreciate the affirmation <laughs> i'll take it um yeah why does she start out before introducing that factual information with like this statistic that there are two billion muslims in the world that's two-sevenths of the world's population what do you think she's Mm -hmm. sharing with the interviewer at that point 
Yeah, I mean, I think she's just trying to point out this idea of, I don't know, like I think about it in my context and Valparaiso, like when I was in high school, I mean, there might have been like one or two Muslim students and not that I would even know, but you know, it's just Mm -hmm. like it's a majority white Christian community. And so I think if you're living in the suburbs, you get this sort of mindset that it's like, it's not something you're exposed to every day, like the Islamic faith. It's not something that you see multiple people around you doing, and it's not something you necessarily turn on the TV and see. So I think it's so easy to put like the entire Islamic faith into this little box that's mm-hmm. like, you know, I don't, I don't see it. I don't necessarily know what it is, but it's just like, I saw 9-11, and so that's what it means to me. And so I think what she's pointing out here is there's two billion Muslims mm-hmm. in the world, and mm-hmm. it's not this little like tiny facet of people it's you know Mm -hmm. one of the leading religions in in the globe yeah so i think she's just trying to point out that it's like yeah as similarly to christians you know it's just like (laughs) there's a lot actually (laughs) (laughs) it's just like you can't characterize two billion people yeah on these actions yeah no um i'm from a much i would say significantly smaller town than valparaiso like less than fifteen thousand people which i know there are smaller places but i still think that's pretty small (laughs) um and um knowingly because of course muslim people the typical or like the more um maybe expressive like Muslim face or denominations or they're not denominations, but you know what I mean? Um, the, the idea is they wear like women wear a hijab or, um, other coverings like coverings, like a niqab. Um, men have the unshaved beard and tend to cover from like shoulders to knees type of deal. Not all Muslims look like that to clarify. Um, I never as knowingly met a Muslim at all in my very small community. And then the first um, lovely Muslim people that I met when I was on campus did not adhere to Mm -hmm. those like modesty standards. So I have since met people, Muslim, again, lovely Muslim people who do adhere to those modesty standards. But yeah, no, I had no, absolutely no touchstones. And the only times that Muslims were talked about in my home life was by my conservative family members talking about them as these like two examples of like terrorist mm-hmm. and oppressed extremely oppressed woman there was no okay. other yeah. space for islam in my community besides yeah. those two things yeah i mean i am still surprised every time i hear this story and that statistic because i do think in america um at least islam is talked about muslim people who follow the muslim faith are talked about as a minority Mm-hmm. In the same way that we think of people of color as a minority, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you get this ingrained in your head. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, I, I, this is probably a human thing, you know, that your experience is the lens on which you see the world. And so if if your community actually does have a minority of, in this case, uh, people who follow the Muslim faith, then um, you just project that onto the rest of the world. And I think Americans are like especially good at forgetting that outside of our country's borders, there's this entire world that's going on mm-hmm. um, that has influence and could influence us on in our way of thinking about who we're relating to if we were open to that. Um, so I I think it's, it's an important way that the storyteller is trying to be like, you know, don't forget to look outside of your Mm -hmm. particular experience. Um, And maybe that's what she means when she gets down to the ignorance part two Mm -hmm. and uh, thinking about like how 
knowledge and education are so essential to like getting us to broaden. Um, I, what do you guys think she meant by ignorance? Like, cause I think I'm putting it, I'm, I'm putting a particular definition on it based on what I, I just said, but do you, like, how would you describe what she's seen as complete ignorance? I mean, in my experience with, again, very conservative family members who watch Fox News and Newsmax exclusively, um, their understanding of a Muslim person is just buck wild. It is. It, it's not founded in reality in most ways that I can see. Like, I'm sure there are, like, again, like just like any other group, there are Christian terrorists. There are Christians who um, treat their women and their group terribly. Um, that's possible, unfortunately, with or without religion, um, and yeah. no matter what religion. But that is the complete picture um, in my experience of, again, with my conservative family is like, this is what a Muslim is and this is what a Muslim looks like. And this is what a Muslim does. Um, so I think, and then not even having a basic understanding of like that Islam comes from Christianity, just like Christianity comes from Judaism. Like they are separate religions, but they are ultimately worshiping the same Abrahamic God. Like they think that Allah, which is just the Abrahamic word for God is, like a whole different God, like yeah. a whole different um, entity yeah. type of deal. So there's just, there's little to no basis in reality besides they're like, well, they're terrorists. Well, they're, they treat women very poorly. And that's like the, the whole understanding. And then their religious understanding of religious is like the Quran is a very violent book. And like, that's ignorance. You know, they know nothing about the Muslim faith. I don't think they've ever actually met Muslim people. Like they have no clue. Like what this, these other people look like or do or how they live i'm struck by the fact too that most americans well maybe i should speak for myself like when i when i hear the term islam or muslim i immediately think of like uh somebody who has middle eastern ancestry and Mm -hmm. or is not american and comes from that part of the world and i forget always that there's a um a black community that follows Islam. And that was like a actually super important part of the civil rights movement in America. And that it doesn't have to be this, uh, imported Mm -hmm. religion, uh, any more than Christianity was like imported, uh, to, to America. So I think that's another level of ignorance that Mm -hmm. actually comes from just not even having a broader picture in America of our American culture. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you think anything else, Willow, about that term ignorance? Yeah, I mean, I think she was also talking about, like, right after the Boston bombings had happened, like, all the tweets that people were doing about Muslims and Arabs. And so I think, like, I mean, I think part of the ignorance is, like, you know, 11 and a half years after 9-11, people are, like, instantly tweeting about Muslims and Arabs when, Mm -hmm. you know, surrounding like a terrorist attack. And so it's like that instant jump, even though they were Chechen. So it's like, I don't know. So there's that still that, that jump to stereotypes for people of the Muslim faith that I think that she's kind of pointing out that it's like, do you, do these people even know where Chechnya is? Like, so I think there's that like, we just literally don't know, and it's so much easier for us to jump to like, oh yeah, terrorism equals people of this faith. Like the American assumption in general of um, Muslim and Islamic people is 
one that they are middle eastern and two that they are violent terrorists yeah and it's like we don't even use like the word terrorist for like christian terrorism no we don't it's like i know we try like i've heard it on like npr but like it's like Mm -hmm. it it doesn't like catch on you know it's like when a guy shows up to a church and like kills a bunch of people in like the name of god or whatever it's just like we don't call that terrorism yeah if it's politically motivated and it's a violent crime it is terrorism Mm mm-hmm you're listening to Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. Um, I'm Allison Schutte, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Willow Walsh and Reagan Skaggs. Today, we are um, honoring 9-11 and its 20th anniversary with some stories around um, Islam and identifying with that both as a uh, in, in terms of the religious practice, but also how um, other people can identify and other I guess is maybe one way of saying it, um, people of the Muslim faith. I mean, I was really struck by that line um, that the uh, there's this lull on the internet, you know, because I it is just such a percolating, ever-present babble. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not even a person that's often on social media or regularly on social media, but it still feels like that image of there being this like, <laughs> you know, as people realize, like, oh, we we better go find out what that means. Uh, where is Chechnya and who is Chechnyan? Um, I think that's really striking as a way to, I don't know if it's an image of, like, a, a, a moment when ignorance does start to turn towards knowledge and education. Mm-hmm. Although, and this is maybe me being too cynical I wonder if knowledge and education is enough. Um, she says, our storyteller says it's the only way to combat ignorance. But when people found out that the bomber was Chechnyan, did it really stop the anti-Islamic, mm-hmm. you know, h- hate? I, like, I don't think so. It, it hasn't changed, like, our reactivity to other events where we make assumptions about who's... Um, like if if a terrorist act happens like before anybody's identified by race or nationality or religion like there's an assumption like that it's going to be a, an a, like an international islamic terrorist or something like that mm-hmm. so i don't yeah i don't know <laughs> is education and knowledge enough i mean that's a big question maybe we don't need to jump there <laughs> but um i mean i think that's an important question though just because i feel like that's um this was often my frustration with like certain movements is that is often where a movement's goal will start and end is like, well, we'll provide the education. Yeah. Like we'll provide the bread and the people will come type of deal. And, uh, some people will come. Um, and some people do like have that realization. Like I would probably be very Islamophobic if I had not gone to college, uh, just because I wouldn't know anything else. Hmm. Um, but it takes more than education to, you know, kind of treat people like they're people. Um, I just, I, I think there needs to be more done almost every time. Like there, you can't just be like, okay, well, Muslims are fine actually. Um, and let's move on. Like there's important opportunities for like people to kind of like, like one thing that the Muslim student association did was you could participate. It was during the winter, not during the summer, like when Ramadan actually is, which I'm very grateful for because I'm that not would have been a that long powerful, day. <laughs> but you could fast with them and then you would come and you would break your fast together at sunset again during the winter. Thank you so much. Islamic student association. Um, and they would answer questions that you had and like, 
you could spend time and you were in a room full of like islamic people and i think that um again as a small town white girl that's experiences that like Mm. a lot of us need to have and like should have like i distinctly remember the first time i walked into a room and the majority of the people in there were black professionals because that has been so foreign to my experience and i feel like those things have been really formative for me and being like okay like letting that breath out of like these stereotypes are not true and I don't have to like worry about it. And you know, I don't know. That's stupid, but no, that's not stupid at all. Like I think uh, at least as another fellow white (laughs) person, (laughs) I can totally relate to that. I don't know. I wonder, I like Reagan, you were talking about like what knowledge and education would look like, because I think like the speaker even talks about like the lull in the internet where people had to go Mm -hmm. and learn where Chechnya was and then also she adds like is it a Muslim country it's like there's always there's that like automatic like Mm. how can I how can I make this stereotype work for me (laughs) where like where's my confirmation bias at you know it's just like so I think like the type of knowledge and education that has to happen and I think you're right it's like I think I mean I know growing up in Valpo it's like I wasn't exposed to that very often mm-hmm. and you you could go you could go to like an after school program or something like that but it's just like I don't know not a, not a whole lot of people go there and also I don't know they don't teach it in school at all so we just yeah. like it's just it's something that you yourself have to go out and seek yeah. and I think it's less about googling things mm-hmm. and more about like meeting people in different spaces well it is so different it is so profoundly different to have this experience of I've always been a big reader so I'll do you know a big read a big deep dive because I become obsessed with a certain topic be like okay so like I feel like I have a general idea and then like you meet somebody who has that experience and it's it's not completely different but it is it's like feels a lot more real um and it's like feels a lot more i don't know inoculating it's tangible and i think that i know that that is not you know possible everywhere you know i'm not asking for like it's, it's ridiculous and unfair and not realistic to be like oh well i think there should just be a tour of insert whatever minority here like lgbt people people of color people of a certain religious minority like whatever and you should just do a tour and like expose people no that's not a realistic thing to say or to expect but i do think that people who are like me who are small town white girls um should try to seek out experiences that are freely given to you by others i think that that is like one of the best ways to kind of get rid of or to uh, negotiate with those those negative stereotypes that you harbor like consciously or unconsciously and i just don't see how people can do that without not only being educated but also like actively engaging in things like art or um Mm -hmm. cultural events or whatever else like not that you need to convert i am i have not converted to anything um but being able to like even attend like an orthodox service you know, it, I feel a lot more empathy than I probably would otherwise to people of the Orthodox Christian faith. Like, I think that's when you have those opportunities to respectfully partake, you know, that's one of the best ways to kind of reflect on those internal biases. Yeah. And I think they should be experiences that happen more than once, right? Because even for those of us who would like to get over our biases, uh, prejudices, um, like a one-time experience isn't enough, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I mean, so as a white person who has done a lot of work collecting stories 
in Gary, and that means oftentimes for the black community. And so that has put me in rooms that are often predominantly black, which was a new experience for me. Um, like I still notice when I'm in a random space, like, I don't know, like walking a street in a city, um, that if I see a, a black man walking in, I, and it's night, like I still have that kind of immediate assumption without even like really scanning and really attending to that person as a person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like it's the conditioning that just immediately starts operating. And so it really does take ongoing work to counter that conditioning with new experiences Mm -hmm. so that um, prejudice doesn't have to be uh, in the so immediate or so in the way or, or what have you. So but I also, I also think that we tend to be uh, thinking about the power of the mind in our culture as like the ultimate kind of power that we have. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that's different about reading a, a book, especially if it's like informational or Googling something, like when you have an experience, your body is engaged mm-hmm. and we forget like actually that there's so much more that goes on for learning and for rehabituating ourselves that has to do not just with how we think but like how our actual body is responding including like our heart right which is um i mean i do think that there's things like uh creative writing that really engages the imagination um where you can approximate experience because like one of the creative writers that i teach talks about uh, the language that writers use because it's so sense-based, like it enters the limbic part of the brain, which is the actual embodied brain that's connected to the rest of the body. So there are ways to use reading of certain kinds of texts that could get you closer to experience, which can actually start, I think, to shift some of these really mm-hmm. heavy prejudices that we sadly have inherited well i also Um, oops sorry this is wvlp lp 103.1 fm in valparaiso and you're here with reagan skaggs willow walsh and me allison shooty we are all hosts for a listen up welcome project radio and today we're discussing several stories from the welcome project archive that are narrated to us by storytellers um who are who identify as muslim and uh, we are doing that in large part because it is 9-11 today and the 20th year anniversary of the attacks. Um, so, Reagan, did you want to add something there? Yeah, um, I think also one of the best things, and this kind of comes back to the conversation we had on gender a few weeks ago um, about like pushing success forward, is I think that one of the best things that we are seeing is like you can just like see like Muslim people in positions of like mm-hmm. power or community. Like there are Muslim senators. Yeah. One of my favorite senators as well. <laughs> I bet you can all guess who. Um, but you know, um, there's, this is becoming more and more common. So like, that's yeah. what it ultimately is also about is like the state of Minnesota can feel represented by a Muslim woman of color and is represented, I mean, in my personal non-Minnesotan opinion, very well (laughs) by a Muslim woman of color. Um, And like, you know, just steps like that, I do feel um, are really big progress. And I feel like in similar things, just like, again, just 
people of whatever minority being in a very visible position, I think that's very vital to Americans' um, ultimate cultural health. That was well put. (laughs) (laughs) Should we play our second story? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, This one is titled Bound to My Safety. An American that I married was incarcerated at Westville Correctional Center. I went into Westville as a chaplain for the Lutheran Church, and we would conduct Bible studies and all this sort of thing. And the guy who was in charge, the offender, was the man that I ended up marrying. I got on his visiting list, and we started building a relationship, and a year later we decided to get married. And he was a Muslim, and so he had a the chaplain, the imam who came over there, gave me all kinds of material. So I agreed to convert. So that's how I became a Muslim. And I still consider myself to be a Muslim. I'm a lifelong resident of Valparaiso, Indiana. I've seen a lot of changes. And when I was growing up, it was totally white. I had always heard that there was a sundown law. Now, nobody can tell me whether it actually has been on the books or not. But people of color were out of town by sundown. My husband at the time worked for the Post Tribune in Gary. His co-workers would come out to our house in the summertime for cookouts. So when it got close to sundown, I'd say, you know, you guys need to be headed for home, and I want to make sure I'm going to escort you out. This is 1970-something at this point. We never had any problems, but I heard enough stories to know that I wasn't being overly cautious. Two incidents that happened directly to me gave me an opportunity, for lack of a better word, to understand what people go through because of the color of their skin or their religion or both. My husband and I would go over to Lake George in Hobart. He loved to fish. So anyway, we were over there one day and we'd had lunch at some fast food thing and I'd walked across the parking lot to throw the papers out. And all of a sudden this car came racing through the park, round in front of him, and called him, Blanken, why don't you go back where you came from? My husband carried a fillet knife to fillet fish when he needed it, and the look on his face, the whole his whole demeanor, I had never seen that before. I just froze, and the tears are welling up in my eyes because it's like, what do I do? The guys went up the hill, turned around, and came back. Well, they yelled at him again, and by this point he pulled out his knife, and uh, you know they zoomed on out. But I mean, I can just remember just shaking afterwards and thinking, my God, this is what people go through all the time, and they, only because of the color of their skin. So I had gone out to an open-air market out on 30, and I was dressed in hijab. I had gone out to the uh, produce, and I was alone. And I had my head covered, and I had something loose on, but it wasn't, you know, a cultural thing. All of a sudden, I heard behind me a car screeching through the parking lot and somebody yelling at me, go back where you came from. And again, I froze. But when I got home that day, I took my hijab off and I put it away and I told my husband, no more. So there's a lot of guilt about that because I kept thinking, I can do this because I haven't worn this all my life. But what about the women who have the same experience, who this is so much a part of their life that they would not even think of taking that off? You know, they would not be able to do it. I had not been a Muslim that long that that I was bound to it. I was more bound to my safety. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. I'm Allison Schutte here with Willow Walsh and Reagan Skaggs. 
And uh, that was the second story for our show today, which is focusing on storytellers who identify as Muslim in honor of uh, the September 11th, 20th anniversary. I am so struck every time by this um, story, just with the the willingness of the storyteller to be honest about like how she feels about these experiences. But I wonder what stands out to you all first from her story. What strikes you? Um, well, for me, I really, I mean, I, the two incidents that she talks about, um, that were kind of like her, her shaping force for understanding how people based on their skin color or religion, uh, in this region, in Hobart in Valparaiso, um, like, can have these experiences. So when she talks about like people uh, driving by her husband, uh, by Lake George, you know, screaming things out the window to the point where they're, you know, so afraid that they have to take out a knife and like, so these people would drive off. And then her going to this open air market out on 30 and then having people to go back, you know, telling her to go back to where she came from. Um, I don't know. It's just like, I think when I think about Sometimes I think about 9-11 or I think about Charlottesville or I think about, I don't know, just various different things that are happening across the country. And I think sometimes we can get in this mindset of it feeling really far away mm. and not necessarily close to home. You know, yeah. that's that's something that happens in New York City. That's something that happens out there, not here in Valparaiso. Yeah. And so I think what I really love about her story is that she really talks about, you know, these tangible things that have happened to her here in this region. And I'm sure she's not alone in having these experiences. But I think, I mean, I know even on the city council, people have talked about, you know, this, you know, I remember Charlottesville specifically, you know, that's something that happens out there. National, I remember this is like a quote, national politics don't enter into our local politics, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's like, there's that mindset that this isn't happening to us. And so I think this story particular is really important to show like, yes, this is definitely happening to us. And also the sundown law, this is not only happening to us now, this has been happening to us for a very (laughs) long time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of um, struck by the fact, and I I interviewed this person, so I remember um, wondering, like, because she was born and raised here, Mm -hmm. um, like, how she developed her own uh, more open, inclusive vision, such Mm -hmm. that, you know, as a a Lutheran chaplain going into Westville, she's um, not she's not cut off the possibility of marrying outside of her race. For example, if you brought up in a sundown town, even if that's not on, it's not directly recognized on a day-to-day level, right? Like it's not on the book, so to Mm -hmm. speak, but still like, it seems like those forces shape you. So I was always curious, like how it's possible for her to be able to imagine outside of that. And she doesn't directly address it here, but she provides a lot of evidence at least for, herself being able to um go beyond kind of like the unconscious training she would have received as a Mm -hmm. white person in Mm -hmm. Valpo yeah I mean for her story I always I was thinking when I heard it first like I mean I think it does require like a lot of like empathy to you know go into like Westfield Correctional Center and be a chaplain perhaps but I wonder I I always think about this idea of like bringing people into your support system, into your family, and that helping you like 
garner this greater sense of empathy. So I, I wonder, I mean, we don't necessarily know from her story, but I wonder if her marriage to her husband, if that changed things for her, like once she brought him into her family, does that change things? Because I know like in Erica's family, um, you know, once, you know, like her family is totally white, but once you have a black grandchild, that's changing things a mm-hmm. little bit for yourself. Because mm-hmm. even if you can't care about the people outside, once it's part of your family and your support system, you're tuned in to their experience a little bit more. So I wonder if that's like the mm-hmm. starting point for her in terms of bringing somebody in and then allowing to see those experiences. But I don't know. I don't think well, we know. Well, and also she would presumably be going into his family too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we also don't know that. Um, but that would be expanding, to, expanding too. I don't yeah. know. That's, that doesn't make sense, but... <laughs> Would expand one as well. Yes. You're being really quiet, Reagan, so I'm just wondering, like, are you holding back on something, or are you just absorbing? I'm not holding back. Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just think about that a lot. And I, I, not that as in, um, so in Islam, when you convert to Islam if you weren't born into it or you come back to it later in life you're called a revert um, because in the Quran it says that everybody is born a Muslim and it's your parents jobs to like cultivate that in you Um, so I I think a lot about not just in this situation um, but in situations where and this has almost nothing to do with this conversation I'm so sorry um, (laughs) where like a revert or um, I assume white um, revert or like other white people entering into a, a, at least in America, a minority culture. I just think about that a lot and like their perspective and, um, how we hold that up against additional perspectives. And it just, her experience of the hijab, um, compared to our previous speakers experience of the hijab, um, and their choice just makes me think a lot about those, that context, I guess. So that's where I'm at. I'm, that's yeah, where my yeah, brain's yeah. percolating at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's jump down there cause we can always come back up, but you know, I, I wonder if we start maybe by trying to understand why do you think she felt guilty for coming home and saying, okay, I'm taking the hijab off and putting it away. Um, I will not be able to wear it anymore. I mean, not all Muslims subscribe to this. I want to make this very clear. Um, I'm not a Muslim, but, you know, you're valid as a Muslim if you don't feel obligated to wear hijab or other uh, modesty garments. Um, But, uh, you know, a lot of Muslims do believe that that's an obligation from God, um, that women wear the hijab. It's also an important, like, cultural signifier. Like, they talk about that a lot with, like, the Egyptian um, Arab Spring and other, like, uprisings during that time period in Islamic countries against colonialist forces of the Mm -hmm. hijab being a cultural symbol. So, like, it became, like, if you're, like, a real Egyptian, you know, if you're a real Iranian um, and you're not trying to give in and give space to these colonial powers, like, you are a proud Muslim and you wear hijab or niqab or whatever else and the men have their beards and all that other fun stuff. Um, So, like, of course, I'm sure she has a lot of guilt for, like, as she directly says, like, you know, other people can do this and I can't do this. But it's also, like, I imagine extra heavy due to this, like, religious and cultural obligation that she is, like, feels very much in and is trying to take part in and does not find herself strong enough to do so. That would be upsetting to me personally. 
so maybe I'm projecting, but yeah, yeah, I think maybe because um, it seems like her awareness is often around race as a social justice issue. Maybe I'm projecting too much myself there that um, for her, the hijab probably was a way of participating in trying to counter any sort of normative American judgment mm-hmm. of of Muslims. Mm-hmm. And so it was an act of solidarity and maybe a, like a clear depiction of being an ally. Um, and so to have this realization that you're not capable of that, mm-hmm. oof, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know, like, I, this is to move away from the storyteller, but do you, do you all think she should feel guilty about that? <laughs> like, there's a part of me that feels like, yeah, you should, maybe because I would, I feel, I would feel that way in her shoes. But I, I don't know if that's appropriate. Yeah. Guilt as a reaction. Is it, is it more like a awareness of the conditions and your own capacity in that moment? And that could just be really honest. So do we have to feel guilty about, about it then? I don't know. See, in my mind, I, I would put the guilt at the level of like deciding not to donate blood. It's like, you know, it's like, I feel guilty about that to a degree, but I also know that it's like, I don't want to pass out once a month. So I think, I, you know, I, I mean, I think the guilt may also come from, Shudi, like you were saying, it's this sort of like challenging of like this like normative understanding of what a Muslim looks like in America. So I think it's like, you can see by her wearing the hijab in Valparaiso on 30, like what that would do for Muslims around her, what that would do for the white people that grow up around her, you know, like to, to experience her. Like, I think like that visual of her would be um, really helpful for people. But I think, I don't know, but it's hard, right? So it's just like, so we're losing something by her taking the hijab off. But I also think that she's kind of noting like how, hard that is I don't know in my mind I'm like I'm thinking about like trying to put it in my experience where I'm like is it unfair for me to like not come out in a space Mm. that's like unwelcoming to queer people but maybe there's a queer person in the room like should I feel guilty not coming out to make that potential one or two people in that room feel safer but at the same time I'm risking my own like sense of security by opening myself up to you know negative comments I don't know that's how I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. I mean I'm just struck by the line that ends this story like I was bound to my safety yeah Yeah. and just feeling like actually she says I was more (laughs) bound to my safety um and I I don't know I I think that in the progressive community we often talk about like getting outside of our comfort zones and seeing that as such a important value um and yet like we all do need safety long for safety uh rely on it for being able to have like a foundation from which then we can 
you know, go outside of our comfort zone. Mm -hmm. So it's such a universal need. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe this isn't fair, but I wonder if we compare the two stories, which you were starting to do a little bit earlier, Reagan, like, um, so I'm assuming that the first storyteller, like, it's not even on her mind, like, to take off the hijab. Like, she just wouldn't. It's not even a choice... I I wouldn't say it's not a choice available to her because I think it probably is. And I would guess that for her, it was an important decision when she did put on the hijab whenever she did from being a girl to a woman or however she conceived of that. But I think um, if it's a part of her family and her upbringing and this really important decision she made that then became a part of who she is, it doesn't seem like something that she would then consider doing as like she has these experiences at the mall, right? Mm -hmm. Like she just makes this other choice to brush it off, um, try to move past it in some way. Um, Does that mean she's not bound to her safety or does she look for safety in other places? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like our second speaker might it's easier to sort of compare like being able to have the hijab on and safety, but I don't know. I feel like for our our first speaker, as you were talking about, like if she's growing up wearing the hijab and being in that faith, and I don't know, I feel like you'd probably feel like an outsider a lot longer than that, you know, just growing up. So it's just like, it must be so normal that it wouldn't feel like, I don't know. Yeah. Like taking the hijab off wouldn't I don't know. It's not it's not on the same level of safety. Like it it has more like grandeur associated to it versus like I'm just going to take this off cuz it feels more comfortable. Like it feels like it has a higher significance wearing the hijab for her. I don't know. I just um I feel like like your question coming back to your question about if she should feel guilty type of okay. deal. Um I don't know that that's my business. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? So, like, I I empathize with this on the level of, like, this is how X, Y, and Z is how I think I would personally respond type of deal. Um, But I think that when it comes to something so personal as, like, a religious or, like, a dietary choice to make it much lower stakes for the sake of comfort, uh, I think that's, like, that's not, like, your business. That's always, like just an individual's business and I say that because I am really weary of turning individuals into symbols Hmm. um and I worry that we do that a lot like and I do it too I'm not saying I don't um but the whole idea of we have this person and we're this this is a narrative this is a story this is an edited cultivated thing um from an interview who was aware that this would be an edited cultivated thing uh, that is wonderful and fine. Um, but I do worry about like, okay, so I can take her guilt and make it a bigger thing when it isn't inherently a bigger thing. So this is like the choice of whether or not to wear a hijab, very important. The ter- choice whether or not to be vegetarian, like again, lower stakes. I would prefer lower stakes. <laughs> very personal. Um there's a lot of reasons to do it or not to do it, including living in like a more conservative area. Maybe you don't uh, feel that is an obligation. Maybe you do, but you don't feel safe making that obligation. Um, And it's similar with Willow's example of like, well, do I come out 
in a room where I know the reception will not be kind, but there may be people who may feel comforted by that reception. I think that um, as an organization, if you're like a big organization, like, yes, you're an LGBT organization, you have to be out. Uh, If you're going to be like the leaders of that organization, like you are making that choice to be out. But I think when it comes to like these small uh, personal decisions about um, personal, like highly if personal things, you have to like let other people's guilt go. But that might just be because I'm a person who really struggles with guilt about mm-hmm. everything, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. including very insignificant things. And so that's, this has been my philosophy. So again, maybe we're just, I'm projecting too much, <laughs> but this is just, that's where I'm coming from, I guess. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I think like, um, I mean, we're also, I think what I heard you saying is like, you use the word personal, um, I was hearing like daily life moments, right? Like, cause contrasted to like an organization that's its purpose and mission is advocacy work or support or mm-hmm. education. Um, you know, to be in that space, uh, operating under that purpose is one thing. Um, and then we have to still live our daily lives, whether that's going to the mall or in this case, going to the open air market on 30 and, um, you know, those are different spaces. So we need to have different expectations of ourselves maybe in those spaces. But I also heard you saying maybe like, if it's not my business, you know, to decide whether she should feel guilty about that, that mm-hmm. it's, giving her, it's giving her ownership of whatever it is that she's feeling and not making something more out of it let's not turn yeah. this into a political message you know or let's just take her for her word at that and uh ho- like hold that and and let her have her discomfort with it um and not try to make it go away but not also try to amplify it in some way yeah, naming the thing in the room i guess yeah and then you know you got to either Either you choose to make a big deal out of it or you let it go. I don't know. That's how I feel about a lot of things. It's like, okay, so is this going to be a big thing or are you going to let it go? And I feel like everybody collectively, especially Twitter, needs to get better at picking those things. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Like Twitter is its own entity. (laughs) The monster in the room. (laughs) I am struck by it. I think there is a sense in which this storyteller the second storyteller feels like she can pass in a way if she takes off the hijab mm-hmm. and i'm guessing maybe that the first speaker wouldn't feel that way and i don't know if it's because i'm assuming she's also um visible by her skin tone yeah. mm-hmm. um although i like i don't know because mm-hmm. um i think even if you have middle eastern ancestry it doesn't necessarily mean anything about your skin tone so uh, but like because um, it was a faith tradition that she was brought up in and that holds alongside of her family mm-hmm. that even if she could pass maybe without the hijab because let's say she was light skinned for some you know, just hypothetically mm-hmm. uh, I, like it would be so much a part of her still I don't know maybe that's being totally unfair to the second speaker who did start by saying I still consider myself to be a Muslim so maybe mm-hmm. I'm entering it <laughs> It's like, I can't resist Reagan, like, going in and, like, making it my business. Um, 
That's actually a really profound lesson that I'm going to take away from today's show. (laughs) Be careful what you make your business, Allison. (laughs) I mean, but like, you know, I'm not, I don't want to, you don't want you to feel that way. Like I, this is a story. We are here to discuss it. I guess like I was, my intention was just like my perspective Yeah, is that, you know, people make very personal decisions and they don't always make sense to us individually. Mm. Um, And there's a lot of reasons for that. Like you talked about like culturally, like maybe the first speaker was like maybe all of her like female relatives that are of age, because usually you start wearing the hijab at puberty, but you know, it's different for everybody. Um, Maybe those, like maybe every that's like a big deal in her family, like all of her cousins and her, her mom and everything wears the hijab. And so like she feels there is a context in which there is safety and a sense of home in the hijab versus this woman who, um, one probably, you know, it's kind of hard. There's a mosque around here. It's not easy to get to. Um, there isn't a ton of like Islamic, visibly Islamic, again, a lot of islamic people don't adhere to beard and other modesty standards including the hijab um but that you know there's there's a very different sense for probably for this speaker who has gone her whole life like you know not maybe sticking out in any particular way yeah and then suddenly you are sticking out in a very particular way so again there's there's all kinds of reasons um and i don't think it's bad to speculate on those i'm not trying to shame anybody um i just think that it's important to like take people at, at at where they're at type yeah. of deal so if if this person then later on comes on and is like okay well now i feel much more comfortable wearing hijab or i have you know maybe even like deconverted or converted to another religion or they have gone to like they wear the niqab and the hijab you know like that's where that person's at um and that's not inherently a moral failing mm-hmm. or yeah. uh winning type of situation yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about it with the second speaker, too. Like, I feel like the first speaker wouldn't experience taking off the hijab in the same way the second speaker would, because if you're growing up and, like, you have this sense of, like, white Christian privilege, Mm -hmm. and then suddenly you're stepping into this, you know, stepping into wearing a hijab, and that makes people see you totally differently. Like, that's got to be even heavier for you who just is used to walking around without anybody. Which noticing you. isn't to say that it's harder for white people to do things. <laughs> just to clarify, that is not what is being said right now. Um, it's just that, you know, different cultural experiences might hit you a little different. And that's, you know, how it is. <laughs> yeah, uh, we have just a minute left. I, I don't know. Do you have final thoughts on this story or today's show generally speaking? I mean, my my last question for, for this story today was just talking about like, this is something that we've talked about uh, in Valpo, like just this sort of like hurtful rhetoric or these small experiences of people like driving by you and like yelling slurs at you or, you know, it's like we, we don't know how to stop that. And I'm not even sure that we really have the capacity to stop mm-hmm. these like few people that do that. So I'm wondering like what, like what we can do, like how do we, I don't know, because I just think about, you know, it's like when you get yelled, like, you know, I don't know if I should say it on the air, but when you get yelled, like, queer slurs or something on the side of the road, it's like, it doesn't matter if 99% of people support you, if those 1% of people are still trying to make you feel as unwelcome as possible. Mm -hmm. I just think about, like, what can I do? And we're going to leave you with that question, (laughs) listeners. (laughs) And uh, thanks again for listening. Um, 
to Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. We are also really grateful for our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. Both are also open for business in person at their locations downtown on Lincoln Way. So visit their websites to learn more. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses.